Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me to Psalm 112 this evening. Psalm 112. While you're turning there, try to paint a little bit of a picture in your mind. Um, I don't know if you can envision with me those doors that can swing both in and out. Uh, I found myself thinking back to some different houses I was in growing up. I, I don't can't think of a house currently that I've been in that does this, where you have almost like those half doors that are kind of maybe separate the kitchen from the rest of the house. Um, I don't know if they're like server's doors or whatever, but you can kind of push them in and go through, or you can push them out and come out, uh, but they swing both ways. And I was thinking about that kind of door, perhaps, uh, maybe at the front of your house where uh, if you push the door out, you step into the beauty of the outdoors, particularly on a night like tonight. I told Phil before we started, I'm like, man, we picked the wrong week for a Singspiration. Um, last week should have been this week and maybe vice versa, but oh well, best laid plans, right? Uh, but you could step outside the door and go, man, look at the beauty out here or push the door and come inside and enjoy the wonders of home and uh, maybe even see things from the outdoors represented inside, whether in a painting or whatever it may be. Uh, when we come to Psalm 112, I want us to think of that analogy because I believe that Psalm 112 is very intricately connected to Psalm 111, and because they're separated as psalms, it's very easy for us just to kind of view them differently and distinctly, but I think they are hinged together in the middle with the ending verse of Psalm 110, and, or 111 rather, and the opening verse of Psalm 112. We are not going to take the time in detail to go through Psalm 111 this evening. But if I go through in my uh, illustration and I try to make it fit for what we're looking at in the psalm, it's like this, the beauty of the outdoors, the greatness, the grandeur of being outside is Psalm 111. And then you come inside and say, so what does it mean, what does it look like in day-to-day life? And it's Psalm 112. Because when you're over here in Psalm 111, we are focused on here are the works of the Lord. Again, if you'll just notice with me maybe a couple details that I think point to their connections. Both psalms open with the same call to praise. Say, hey, praise the Lord. They're also both acrostics. Uh, we don't look at things in Hebrew, thankfully. But if you were to look at the 10 verses of both psalms, both of them have 10. Uh, there are different lines in each of them that are representative of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, both psalms being acrostics. When you're out here in Psalm 111, you're saying, hey, look at God's works. Here are the works of God. When you come into Psalm 112, it says, and here's what it looks like for the man of God. I told you this morning, we're going to look at this portrait in Psalm 112 of what it looks like to be this man of God, this blessed man from God. But if you'll notice with me for just a moment, there's a middle hinge, if you will, and we'll build it out further But Psalm 111 ends saying, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments, his praise endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, that delighteth greatly in his commandments. I feel like I almost owe the young adults the adults helping with the young adults an apology because this is very redundant of what we've seen the last two weeks in Sunday school. To go, hey, look, the person who is blessed in life, the person who lives in wisdom, is the person who fears the Lord. Again, we didn't have the privilege of having all of you in Sunday school last Sunday, 
But we spent some time just talking about what does the good life look like? You know, we could build that out tonight. We won't. But to go, so what does a good life look like in relationships? What does a good life look like in work? What does a good life look like in your possessions? And made the argument that really all of that is defined by wisdom, which starts with fearing God. Solomon's writing to his son Proverbs in Proverbs saying, my son, you need to hear these things. You need to obey these things. You need to do these things. And it all starts with this fear of the Lord. And so Psalm 112, tonight we're going to look at, here's what the man who fears God is blessed in. Now again, even in that analogy, or that reference to Proverbs, I want you to notice that Psalm 111 and 112 are wisdom psalms. To say, here's what life generally is supposed to look like when these things hold true. Here's the proverbial wisdom or the rule that generally follows. We can look at any given point in life and go, well, does it line up right here exactly right now? And maybe the answer is no. But God has given us these things to say, here's what things generally look like in wisdom. Again, you look at the works of God. We're told, and I just want to run through some of these very quickly in Psalm 111 after the call to praise in verse 1. He says, the works of the Lord are great. They're to be sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. His works honorable and glorious. You look at verse 4. He made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord's gracious, full of compassion. He's given meat to them that fear him. You jump down to verse 9. He sent redemption on his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverend is his name. I was thinking even as we sang holy, mighty, worthy earlier. You see it again even in that verse there. Uh, what Roland talked to us about on Wednesday night. To think, look at the Lord. Holy. Holy, holy, all the time, nonstop, forever by the angels there in Revelation 4, verse 8. Pretty amazing stuff. Like, look at who God is. And now we zoom in and go, so what does that mean for a blessed man? Don't miss that the person who is blessed in this text is the one who's fearing God. Who's saying, at the end of the day, I just want to please him. I want to live for him. We don't go to Psalm 112 going, how do I get the blessings of Psalm 112 so I can just have a good life for me? We're missing it already. We, we've turned it into selfishness. Like, God, would you make my life work? So our spirituality is some kind of utilitarian goal. Instead of saying, you know what? At the end of the day, what I want to do is revere God and give him the obedience, give him the worship that is due his name. If we focus on the man of God in Psalm 112, you'll notice with me that it begins with a call to praise him. Praise ye the Lord. We've spent since, I think, last September walking through different psalms saying, hey, look at praising God on every path of life. And so this is nothing new for us to once again hear the psalmist say, hey, praise the Lord. Praise Jehovah, the one who is self-existent, who commits himself to his people. He doesn't need us but he delights in being worshipped by us. And again, if we took the time to walk back through Psalm 111 in more detail, we'd have even more reason to go, we got lots of room to praise him. Look at who he is. Look at how he's worked. He's done that that he would be remembered. But beyond that initial call to praise God, then we see a summary of the character of the blessed man 
in the remainder of the psalm, where we want to focus in our time together, the summary character. You'll notice with me first, as we look at the second part of verse 1, that the blessed man lives in humble reverence for God. The blessed man lives in humble reverence for God. It says, blessed is the man that feareth the Lord. I haven't made my way all the way through it, so maybe I shouldn't mention it, but I've started reading a book entitled Rejoice and Tremble. It's on the fear of the Lord. I think it's a good combination to go, you know what fearing the Lord is? It's, it's not just, well, you know what, I'm really scared and I'm going to hold back, but it's this idea of I'm drawn to, I'm captivated by, I need to live for, but I respect. It's the idea here of fear of the Lord, to go, you know what, I, I rejoice in Him, I, I want to know Him, but I also tremble at the idea I don't completely belong here. I am both in awe of and with a fear of him. It says the blessed man is one who fears him. That kind of reverence is life-shaping. It's all-encompassing. It factors into every part of life. That is why I love how Proverbs takes this and builds it out to go. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, same thought. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What Psalm 111, verse 10 said. But then we go, so what is it like to fear God in relationships. Well, we could go to Proverbs 1.10 as an example and go, hey, my son, when sinners entice thee, consent thou not, walk not thou in the way with them. Like, hey, there's people that you stay away from. Or we could go to Proverbs 6 and Proverbs 7, there are places and people you don't go with. You are to stay away from them. Well, what does it look like to fear God when I go to work? go, well, you know what? Here's what that happens with the hands of the diligent. Or let's look at the example of the ant. Or what does it look like to fear God with my words? And again, over and over, Proverbs is going to say, hey, the tongue of the wise is a tree of life. The tongue of the wise brings health. You say, here's how fearing God impacts my words. Here's how fearing God impacts my finances. And we could go on and on. But a blessed man has this life-shaping, all-encompassing reverence for the Lord that factors into every decision. And certainly it's worth fearing him when we think about who he is as spelled out in Psalm 111. I wonder if we were to try to assess our last week. What shaped the decisions that I made? In my use of time, in my use of words, in the people I engaged, in the manner in which I engaged them, in the things that I spent time on, maybe the things that I spent money on, what factors came into those decisions? It's a wonderful thing when we go, well, you know what? That text of Scripture there shaped my decision here. The prompting of God's Spirit shaped my decision there. The fact that we've been challenged from 1 John with the idea that we need to love people shaped how I interacted with that person there. That's what the fear of the Lord begins to look like for us in life, to go, God, I want to please you. I want to live out the truth of your word. I want to make decisions based on that humble reverence for you. Looking at the character of the blessed man, we've said first, he lives with humble reverence for God. But as we come to the end of verse 1, notice with me, secondly, a blessed man lives in joyful obedience to God. The blessed man lives in joyful obedience to God that delighteth greatly in his commandments. 
He's not looking at God's instructions, his commands as restrictive have-tos, but rather joyful want-tos. To go, God, I'm I'm delighting in your word. I, I want to do what you say. I want to know what it says. I want to follow it. It's that blessed man that we looked at now quite some time ago in Psalm 1, right? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law doth he meditate day and night. To go, God, I want to know what your word says. I want to obey what your word says. The blessed man here in Psalm 112 says, yes, I I have this reverence for God. I fear him, but I delight in hearing what he has to say and obeying it. A sense of joyful obedience. So entry-level character, if you will, for the blessed man, humble reverence for God, joyful obedience to God. So again, I would encourage each of us to go, what does that look like for me right now? When God starts to kind of, through his spirit, through his word, go, you need to obey that. You need to follow that. It's like, all right, God, I I, want to please you. I will joyfully obey you. You want me to reach out and share truth with that person? I will. You want me to grant forgiveness? I will. You want me to show kindness in the face of absolute evil or ugliness? I will. You want you to use my words to bring health, grace to the hearer? I will. Entry-level character for the blessed man involves humble reverence for God, joyful obedience to God. We've looked at his character. We've seen this call to praise. And then we want to see what are the consequences of this? What are the consequences of living in this fear of the Lord, in delighting in his commandments? As we work our way from verse 2 down through verse 10, we're going to see these phrases at the beginning and Often, not always, but often they're balanced out with a second phrase where it's like, wow, that's quite the blessing in verse 1, but then we're pointed to here's the obedience or here's the character side at the end of the verse as well. Again, these are proverbially wisely true. I briefly shared a summary of this psalm with the deacons a while back and went, you know, I don't understand all of this, but I'm thankful that God blesses. So we look at the consequences of wise living. We come to verse 2 and we read these words, His seed shall be mighty upon the earth. We're not looking here going, well, you know what? This is true for the king, right? We're just told, here's what's true for the person who fears God and delights in his commandments. We could summarize this first consequence to say, notice the gravity of his influence. Notice the gravity of his influence. His seed, his heritage shall be mighty upon the earth. The word mighty is an interesting one. You know, often in my mind it goes to, well, okay, that means he's going to be victorious in battle. And that can be a consequence of this word. But most generically, this word carries the idea of here's someone who is influential. It can be influential in a military context, but it can be influential just in society in general. Go, here are those who are going to make a difference. What a wonderful statement to go. The person who seeks to fear God is a difference maker. They have a gravity of influence. Again, this doesn't need to be recognized by all, but for those who know them, the blessed man is a leader who is mighty, who is influential, 
And certainly, even as we read the words of verse 2 to go, even those beyond him, he has an impact. I think of it by way of application for us. The person who fears the Lord, that delights in his commandments, could be mighty, could be influential in their church, in their company, at their job, in their community, their society, to go, this is someone who is a difference maker. The second part of the verse explains why the generation of the upright shall be blessed. There's this generational continuation of blessing because they are upright. They're striving to live in a way that meets God's standard, that's righteous, and that's why they are blessed. Corresponds again with that idea of fearing him to go, if I fear him, I seek to obey him, I seek to live in an upright way. So first consequence of wise living, notice the gravity of his influence. Secondly, as we come to verse 3, notice the sufficiency of his resources. The sufficiency of his resources. The blessed man who fears the Lord, who delights in his commands, wealth and riches shall be in his house. Again, I think we read this sometimes and we begin to think of like the ultra wealthy. And uh, I think we're missing the point when we realize, like even in our country, we're all very blessed. But the word wealth here particularly carries an interesting nuance that we don't catch when we hear the word wealth in English. It carries the idea of sufficient. The person who fears the Lord has what is sufficient. He has what is needed. In fact, I noticed earlier as we were reading, you look at Psalm 111 verse 5, when we look at God's works, it says, He has given meat to them that fear Him. He's given what is needed to those who have this reverence for him. And now we come back and we start to read the description of the blessed man, and we're told what is sufficient, this wealth and riches are in his house. Again, I won't belabor it too long, but this corresponds with Proverbs. Wisdom cries out in Proverbs 8. Who will listen? She's crying out in the street. And Proverbs 8, 18, wisdom cries out and says, riches and honor are with me, durable, or the idea of durable is enduring riches and righteousness. God gives what is sufficient. You think of the wisdom of Proverbs 30, where uh, I think it's Lemuel, I'd have to go back and check for sure, is the one who says, God, I'm not asking for poverty or riches, I'm just asking that you would feed me with food sufficient for me. Psalmist here is saying the wise person has what is sufficient. He has enough. But notice the balancing statement. His righteousness endureth forever. That word righteousness, again, speaking of meeting God's standard. Continues on. And when we come across the word righteousness in Scripture, it's interesting because it is, we could say, both a gift and a goal, Right? We, we can't really miss either. Are you righteous here tonight? Like, how do I answer that question? Because on one hand, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, you have to say yes. I have been declared righteous. That is why the Bible will refer to New Testament Christians as saints, as righteous ones. To go, you're holy, you're righteous, you meet God's standard. And you're like, yeah, but I don't feel like it. I don't always live like it. And he's like, no, because Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. It is given to you. It's a gift. But on the other hand, and we've seen this a lot as we studied 1 John 3, even 1 John 1, 
Righteousness is also a goal for you living in mind where we go, yes, God's given that to me graciously through Christ, but I'm to live that way. I'm to seek to purify myself even as he is pure, if we want to use the words of 1 John 3, 3. Saying, you know what, for this blessed man who's fearing God, he's striving to live righteously and that righteousness continues on. It is lasting, it is permanent. The one who fears the Lord and delights in obeying him, first, has a gravity of influence. Secondly, has a sufficiency of resource. Third, has clarity of his direction. Unto the upright, there ariseth light in the darkness. You know, in the midst of navigating life and the darkness and difficulty and challenges and confusion of the world, for the one who's seeking to live rightly before God in integrity says, light shines in the darkness. Almost the idea of glistening, right? It's like, you know, there's points in, out here where we can go outside and the moon is full. And you don't need a light to navigate around. You can walk pretty clearly. Like When hunting season rolls around, I kind of enjoy those times. Right? I, I don't need to worry about how I get to my tree stand. I don't need a flashlight. Full moon's out. I can see the way. It's not a problem. It says, for the person who is upright with God, There's light in the darkness to go, here's the next step. And in the confusion and chaos and evil and darkness of this world, I know where to go. Again, we can argue, and I think it's legitimately applicationally true, that in other Psalms, that does happen through God's Word, right? That that God's Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. But God is saying, as I take steps to obey Him, to walk uprightly with Him, He provides light that is needed to direct In light of that light of clarity, we're told how he lives. Again, we're pointed to the character of his life once more to say, here's the blessed man. Yes, he has light, but here's the character that comes out of fearing him. Each of these we could spend a lot of time on. We won't this evening, but notice he is gracious, full of compassion, and righteous. We're at a point in the psalm where there starts to be more directly spelled out. So what does uprightness look like? What does righteousness look like? And Here we're told this blessed man lives in a way that is gracious, or he has a kindness and mercy. You know what? I'm going to treat others the way that God has treated me. You go, you know what? I am going to bless you and give you what you may not deserve, but I'm going to treat you with that grace. Or even though there's wrong here and might be inclined to exact justice to go, I'm going to treat you with mercy. The blessed man here is gracious. He's also full of compassion, that tender love. If you were to look this word up in a lexicon and start to look at other uses, it's often used of moms. It speaks of a tenderness, a love. To go, here's the blessed man, because he fears God, he treats others tenderly, compassionately. Not brashly, not roughly, but lovingly. Again, a goal for us to strive for if we do fear the Lord. He is gracious, full of compassion, and we come to this word again, righteous. Doing what is fair and just, meeting God's standard to go, God, I want to live up to your standard. You know, so often when we begin to look at things, we're like, well, uh, I'm not like that. And instead of looking at God's standard, we look at other people or other opinions. 
The blessed man here goes, God, I, I want to live right before you, meeting your standard. Looking at the consequences of wise living for this blessed man, we've said here's the gravity of his influence. His seed will be mighty. We've seen the sufficiency of his resources, wealth, and riches. We've seen the clarity of his direction. There's light that arises, and as a result, he's full of God. He is gracious, full of compassion, and righteous. But fourth, notice with me the generosity in his stewardship. The generosity in his stewardship. He fears God. He's blessed by God. He looks at the works of God, delights in his commandments. But then we hit a theme that says this blessed man is someone who is generous in his stewardship. This theme shows up, and we're going to do this with our last two thoughts this evening, but it shows up twice in the psalm. It shows up in verse 5, and then again in verse 9. We're going to consider them both here in this idea of the generosity of a stewardship. Beginning of verse 5 says, A good man showeth favor and lendeth. The idea of showing favor is he's acting graciously and generously. He's seeing the need and going, here, let me help. We've already been told he has sufficient resources earlier. He has enough because God has blessed, but it's not just about him. It is about how do I help those around me? That's this blessed man here described as a good man. It's also intriguing to me how the thought is balanced out at the end of the verse. He doesn't do so recklessly because notice the next phrase, he guide, will guide his affairs with discretion. You know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help here. I'm going to lend here. I'm going to give generously here. But he handles and conducts his life with discretion, with wisdom, to make good decisions in sound judgment. We might, that's why we say it's the generosity in his stewardship. A steward doesn't selfishly hoard, nor does he recklessly spend and give. It's a challenge to each of us to go, you know, what is my stewardship look like? What is yours? Like, we're looking at this portrait of the blessed man, and if we were to assess in life, does that blessing show up because God has just entrusted us with different things, and we go, you know what, I'm going to help that person, and I'm going to help there. God has been so kind to me, I want to be a blessing to others. What does your generosity look like, we might say? If you look at verse 9, we read these words, so he hath dispersed, he hath given to the poor. The theme shows up again later, and in fact, it's interesting where that theme shows up in verse 9, because you read verse 7, and we're talking about the troubles in the world, and we get to verse 8, and man, he's got enemies. We're going to get to verse 10, and he's uh, got more conversation about enemies. And in the context of difficulties and enemies, we're told, here's someone who's been generous, They've met the needs of people around them, doing so with sound discretion in guiding his affairs. So I was reading one of the commentators. I appreciate the statement just reminding us that generosity is evidence of gratitude for God's gifts. To go, man, look, Psalm 111, look at what God has done for me. I fear him. I want to live for him. And because of that, I, I'm going to be a blessing to others. This word dispersed can also be translated scattered, and it shows up again in Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 24. There is that scattereth, and yet increaseth, and there is that withholdeth more than his meat, but attendeth to poverty. Say, you know what? There is those who give, and God just blesses, and he entrusts more. And then there are those who are like, nope, and they hang on. 
and God dwindles it away. From a New Testament perspective, it's fascinating where this psalm also shows up. It's a passage familiar to many of us. It's in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It's a passage we have often used over time to talk about giving to missions, and I want to remind us of the biblical context in which that takes place. Uh, In fact, recently we were just reading in Acts 13, if you're in the church's Bible reading plan, and we're told about this famine that arises in Jerusalem and how the apostles are going to receive money and it's going to be sent with Paul and Barnabas back to meet the need of those who are struggling because of the famine. Well, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is talking about that. And in 2 Corinthians 8, Paul's challenging the church at Corinth to go, hey, look, the churches at Macedonia, they're in deep poverty, but they gave abundantly to help. So follow through in your commitment and you give also. You come into 2 Corinthians chapter 9 as he continues to challenge the church at Corinth. And he says this, starting in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. This I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that ye also, having always all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. It's like there's a lot of alls in there. Like if you give, God can take care of you, right? That's generally the point there. But then catch this. This is 2 Corinthians 9, verse 9. As it is written, it's a little pastoral parenthetical comment, in Psalm 112, This is 2 Corinthians 9, verse 9. As it is written in Psalm 112, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the minister bread for your food, and multiply the seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness, being rich in everything, to all bountifulness, which causeth us, causeth through us thanksgiving to God. He says, you know what? God wrote about this. It is written in Psalm 112, give. Be generous. It's a mark of the blessed man here in Psalm 112, verse 9. Again, it's a theme that shows up in 1 Timothy chapter 6 as well, to say, hey, God's given you all things richly to enjoy, but I'm charging those who are rich in this world not to trust in uncertain riches, but to trust in the living God. And he says, but that they be ready to do good, rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, saying willing to meet needs, to be used of God to do so. Again, the results of his generous giving consistent with what we've seen other places. It says, his righteousness endureth forever. I think that same theme showed up in 1 Timothy 6. We won't go back there for sake of time. It says, his horn shall be exalted with honor. The idea of a horn is a picture of strength, elevated above. To go, he's honored because of his generosity. The blessed man has received of God possessions, stuff resources, and yet uses that to be a blessing to others in his wise stewardship. So again, I'd ask us, what does that look like in your life? What does that look like in my life? And I think, frankly, it's very easy for us to go, let me just put that as a line item in the budget. I'm not going to restrict it to the budget, but to go, just put that in there. How much per month do you want to give? And if God burdens you and it's more, great. But, you know, if we kind of fail to plan, and it's like, well, maybe, for most of us, I'll say maybe for me, 
it might not happen. Right? The blessed man here is described as someone who does give. Looking at the consequences of wise living, fearing Lord, delighting his commandments, we say here's the gravity of his influence, the sufficiency of his resources, the clarity of his direction, the generosity of his stewardship, and finally, the security of his life. The security of his life. You'll see this in verse 6, 7, 8, and 10 along the way. You come to verse 6 and we read these words, surely he shall not be moved forever. We might summarize that statement this way. His life is marked by enduring stability. His life is marked by enduring stability. And a youth pastor who would illustrate it this way, he'd bring some of us up to the front, different points, and sometimes he'd give us a cup of water, sometimes not, but he said, just stand there. And then he would like check us with his shoulder. He's a fairly big guy, and it's like, you moved, why'd you move? Like, you got bumped. We know there's all kinds of stuff in life that bumps us, right? It can be something as minor as someone said something to us. We read something online. Now we're stirred up. We're bumped. We're off course. We're frustrated. It can be an unexpected bill. It can be a relational conflict. You watch the news. Oh, my goodness. Right? It could be the price of gas. We're bumped. You know, the picture here of the man who is blessed because he fears the Lord is a picture of enduring stability. He's not fearful of what other people think. He's not fearful of what politicians are doing. He's not fearful about what his employer's next steps are. He's fearful of the Lord. He delights in his commands. So he is not moved wonderful challenge for me, even going into the next week, to go, okay, Lord, keep me focused on you, fearing you, delighting in obeying you. Don't let me get bumped, because the blessed man is not moved forever. He is stable, and yet his life is not only marked by enduring stability. Secondly, end of verse 6, his life is marked by an enduring legacy. His life is marked by an enduring legacy. The righteous shall be an everlasting remembrance. He's not just stable in life. He's stable in memory. He's respected. He's appreciated. He's done what is right because he's feared the Lord. All of this security is true because of our final thought. that We'll see in verse 7, 8, and verse 10. His life is marked by an enduring dependency. Why is he not moved? Why is he remembered? It's because of the one he trusted. It's because of this enduring dependency. In spite of the blessings in the psalm, he's not self-reliant. This isn't, you know, I got this. I'm the blessed guy. I got it all under control. Nor, on the other hand, is he like, man, I am so scared. No, he's simply trusting the Lord. Bad news doesn't stop him. It doesn't impact him. Verse 7, he shall not be afraid of evil tidings. I find this particularly helpful for us to consider and think about in the way life works for us over the last several years in a very technological world where you can be fed the next important thing. Like There are people out there who want you to be very concerned about the weather in a given moment. 
severe weather alert, right? It's like, oh no, it's probably going to be okay, right? And that's really the minor one. You start going and you can get up-to-date minute-by-minute descriptions of here's what's going on with the war or here's what's going on with the next sickness and illness that's out there and how it's going to impact your life and here's what inflation's going to do and if they don't get this under control, here's what's going to happen next. And there's all of these fear-mongering presentations. You know, for the blessed man, he's not concerned. He's not going to be moved. He's not afraid of inflation or what the stock market is going to do. I mean, I I find it helpful to think about his situation because in verse 8 and verse 10, which we won't spend a lot of time with this evening, he's got enemies, right? This isn't just like environmental circumstances that might impact the quality of his life. These are people who want to get him. It's okay. He's not going to be moved. He's not going to be afraid of bad news. Why? Verse 7 in the beginning of verse 8 is key. His heart is fixed. Trusting the Lord. The decision's made. His heart is set. What he fears is the Lord. What he delights in is obeying him. So his heart is firmly established. It is fixed, trusting the Lord. It's very interesting, Sunday night, so I won't belabor it, but trusting is actually a passive voice verb, which is like really not what we're expecting, because trusting is something we do so actively, right? All right, I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust. But because this person has already decided to fear the Lord, Because this person has fixed his heart on him, this trusting is something that God is just bolstering in him. We could say it this way. We could translate it this way. He is made secure in the Lord. He's good because he fears the Lord and the Lord has him. He is made secure in the Lord. You note... Coming into verse 8, we've said his heart is fixed. Verse 8 just reiterates his his heart is established. He shall not be afraid. Even though there are those enemies, he's waiting to see his desire upon those enemies. The wicked are going to see what happened and be grieved. All of that in verse 10. For this man, he's not going to be afraid because his heart is fixed. His heart is established. So to ask us, when we think about this last thought, this security of this blessed man's life, what has your heart? Like We're going to fear something. We're going to respect, revere, give credibility to something. Whether it's people and their opinions, whether it's the pressures of life, whether it's what we read on the news or see on the news. I wonder what has your heart. We do well when we identify with the psalmist and go, actually, what I fear the most is the Lord. I want to please him. I want to delight in his commands. I want to fix my heart on him so that I'm made secure in him. That's how we live this stable life. We want to praise the Lord. He deserves it. Look at his works. But for the blessed man, he says, okay, humble reverence for God, joyful obedience to God, 
And as a result, there is a gravity or seriousness to his influence. There is a sufficiency in his resources. There's clarity to his direction in life. There's generosity in his stewardship. And then finally, there's security for his life. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you take these truths from your word and use them to strengthen our faith in you and our fear of you. Lord, I pray that it would be true of us as we head into this week that we live with a awe and respect of you, but that we also delight in striving to obey you, striving to live to meet your standard. But God, in our frailty, we recognize we fall far short. So we stand in need of your grace to enable, to strengthen, that, Lord, we would be blessed by you, that it would show up in a committed trust that provides a stability in a very unstable world that it would show up in generosity, just seeking to be a blessing to others, that it would show up in clarity of knowing what to do and how to live because in the darkness of this world, we're following the light of your word. Father, I thank you for this text. I pray that you would use it to meet individual needs in each life here. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.